0: Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Chris at Internet Radio. Today is Friday, April 16th, 2021. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This evening, I am going to present part 28 of our commentary on the wisdom of Solomon, and it is titled, The Emergent World. I remember many years ago, Clifton Emma Heiser wrote a brief paper, The Unseen World Within Our World. And while the paper was true, and it was accurate from a particular perspective, I really think the unseen world is the children of Israel, and soon they will be the world, the only world. That being said... Throughout these late chapters of wisdom, Solomon had described at length particular elements of the account of the exodus and the punishments which had come upon Egypt, while contrasting those to the various trials and blessings which were experienced by the Israelites both during and after their own flight from Egypt. Making this comparison... Solomon asserted that Yahweh God had punished the Egyptians for their for their destruction. However, in the process of doing so, he had sheltered Israel from those plagues. Although, in the preservation of Israel, they were also often chastised for their correction. So, in his analogy and especially the manner in which he described the account of the serpents which had beset the children of Israel in the desert, or how they were once fed with the strange-tasting meat of quail mothers, Solomon conveys the lesson that even when Israel is punished, it is to effect their ultimate preservation. Actually, in this chapter we are going to revisit the Solomon's account of the serpents in the desert, and in chapter nineteen he mentions the quails or quail mothers in Greek once again. Now in this eighteenth chapter of wisdom, Solomon remains focused on that first Passover, upon which the Egyptians had suffered the death of their firstborn. So where he presented an account of this event as an analogy which continues throughout this chapter, we see that the Egyptians had died of fear in the darkness, while in the the dark of night, the children of Israel were preserved in a great light. That light evidently represents the presence of Yahweh God over Egypt as he both punished the Egyptians and preserved his people Israel. So where we had left off midway through the chapter in our last presentation in this commentary, he had also concluded that once the dark of night had stricken the Egyptians, and I'm actually quoting one of my concluding paragraphs to the last presentation, the nation never again recovered its former glory, but instead had entered a long period of stagnation and decline. At that same time, the Israelites, having enjoyed the light of day, went on to become a great kingdom. As Solomon concludes this chapter, we shall indeed see that this was the emergent world, and that in this manner, Egypt, representing the old world, also stands as a type or model for the future. Solomon's analogy of the contrasting fates of Egypt and Israel contains many smaller analogies, the latest of which we have already discussed, near where we had left off in this chapter, offering our own translation of verses 9 and 10 of Wisdom chapter 18, where it says, For secretly the righteous children of good men sacrificed and in harmony acted upon the divine law for the saints to partake equally of the same things, both of good and of danger, while already singing the praises of the fathers. But in response there sounded the discordant cry of the enemies, and it carried a pitiable sound of the singing of dirges for the children. So the Israelites, having been preserved on account of the promises which Yahweh God had made to their fathers, are depicted as singing the praises of their fathers for that reason. Yet the Egyptians, who were in essence being punished for the sins of their own fathers, who had enslaved and had then sought to destroy the the Israelites, had instead lamented the loss of their children. Then, in verse 11, the last verse which we had discussed here, Solomon attests that this punishment came upon all Egyptians, regardless of their status or class, where he wrote that the master and the servant were punished after one manner, And like as the king, so suffered the common person. So now, as we commence with Wisdom chapter 18, Solomon continues with that same thought. And we begin with verse 12. So they altogether had innumerable dead with one kind of death. Neither were the living sufficient to bury them for in one moment the noblest offspring of them was destroyed. The adverb, homothumidon, which is altogether here, means with one accord, a compound of words which literally and most fully mean one and the same breath, or perhaps with one and the same breath. The noun, onoma, is primarily a name. But here in the King James Version, it is kind. Although it may have been like kind like a type. Although it may have been better rendered as expression, as it was also used in certain contexts in the writings of the classical period. The adjective here. Necros is dead, but we would interpret it as a substantive in this context, as a noun, where it is a dead body or a corpse. So for these and other reasons, we would translate the first clause of this passage to read, so they all with one accord in one expression of death had innumerable corpses it seems that the poetic language purposely alluded to the singing of dirges for the dead children and other images which solomon had drawn in the descriptions in the earlier descriptions of these events that the egyptians acted as one in both their persecution of israel and by dying together in their response to the punishment which they had suffered for that persecution. In the second clause of this verse, where we read that the noblest offspring of them was destroyed. The word for offspring, and this is, um, to me it's interesting, which is why I wrote these notes, because the King James Version does translate these words properly when they must, but not when they should. The word for offspring is genesis, and primarily it is origin. Therefore, in reference to people, it may refer to the circumstances of their birth. The King James Version in the New Testament had translated it on occasion as birth, and on occasion as generation, which is not entirely correct. Since, like the cognate word genea, when it is used of people, it refers to their race or descent. Yet, in this context, offspring is acceptable, as it is a noun and refers to the firstborn children of the race the race of Egypt, not of the race of the Israelites who were alive in Egypt at the same time. So we see the racial connotation of this word holds true. And it refers to their firstborn children, whether or not they had already reached adulthood. While the King James translators did not necessarily mean to convey what modern English speakers may imagine, where they translated genea, genos, and this word, genesis, as generation. Here in this passage, we can see that they understood the significance of those terms. In their own time, 1611 in this case, a generation of people, is something that was generated by a particular race of people. However, since most people no longer use generation in that sense today, translating these words as race is frequently much more appropriate. Here Solomon also describes the firstborn sons of the Egyptians to have been the most valuable of the race, or offspring. Where the Greek term is a comparative form of antimos, which is honored or prized. As we have explained from the apparent history of Egypt, upon suffering this loss, the nation never again returned to its former glory. Now Solomon continues this analogy and describes the event as a hard lesson learned by the surviving Egyptians. In verse 13, For whereas they would not believe anything by reason of the enchantments, upon the destruction of the firstborn, they acknowledged this people to be the sons of God. This people, of course, referring to the children of Israel, which they were holding captive. We would translate the first clause of this verse more accurately to read, for disbelieving everything on account of the enchantments. The word for enchantments here is a plural form of pharmacia, sorcery, or witchcraft, and the source of our modern word pharmacy and the related terms, which is also something that is certainly no coincidence. The verb homologio here, translated as acknowledge, is more accurately to agree, or to confess, or concede, But more significantly, in the Greek of this passage, the word for son is singular and not plural. So Solomon seems to be referring to the people collectively, as they are Israel, the name which was first given to their patriarch Jacob. So in like manner... We read in Hosea chapter 11, When Israel was a child, then I loved him, and called my son the collected people, and called my son out of Egypt. However, that prophecy had a dual purpose, as the Apostle Matthew had described the sojourn of Joseph and Mary to Egypt with the infant Christ, citing that very same passage in reference to him and therefore it describes both Jacob collectively and Christ himself as a sign of his having fulfilled the word of god at any rate they acknowledge this people to be the son of god because the word is singular in the greek and not plural the enchantments to which solomon refers seems to have Than those of their own imaginations. However, while the magicians of Egypt did apparently manage to turn their staffs into serpents, they could not match the feats of the bringing forth of frogs or of lice, and they themselves had been infected by the boils the magicians were infected by the boils. So when the plague of boils came upon Egypt, the magicians would not even appear in the court of Pharaoh to challenge Moses. So perhaps the people, the people of Egypt, had nevertheless maintained a false hope in their magicians. In spite of where we read in Exodus chapter 8, after the magicians had failed to produce frogs and lice of their own, that then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he hearkened not unto them, as Yahweh had said. Now, continuing, Solomon describes the night of the death of the firstborn in another way. And we will read from verse 14, from um, verses 14 through 16. There aren't a, a lot of comments on this passage, and the translation of it is actually pretty good in the King James Version. For while all things were in quiet silence, and that night was in the midst of her swift course, mine almighty word leaped down from heaven out of thy royal throne, as a fierce man of war, into the midst of a land of destruction, and brought thine unfeigned commandment as a sharp sword, and standing up filled all things with death, and it touched heaven, but it stood upon the earth." Now, despite its faults, in many places the King James Version did quite well in its translation of the poetic language of wisdom. We cannot forget that wisdom is, at least in the Greek, it's arranged and written as a poem and not as prose. Other books of the Old Testament, for instance, the Exodus account, at least in large part, was written as a Hebrew epic poem. But when it was translated into Greek, it was translated as prose. But on the other hand, this manner in which the King James Version does so well in many portions of wisdom, on the other hand, that also leads me to believe that some of its apparent errors were purposeful especially where they concern the distinctions between good and wicked races and the warnings distinguishing sons and bastards, which the King James Version always, or at least almost always, seems to botch. So here Solomon has very poetically described the judgment of God as leaping out of heaven like a mighty warrior, vanquishing his enemies in a battle-torn land. We see similar language in Deuteronomy chapter 32, in words attributed by Moses to Yahweh himself, where we read, See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God with me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and say, I live forever. And if I wet my glittering sword and take hand and mine hand take hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to mine enemies, and will reward them that hate me. I will make mine arrows drunk with blood, and my sword shall devour flesh, and that with the blood of the slain and of the captives from the beginning of revenges upon the enemy now. I could take a quick stab as a digression. I could take a quick stab at the Trinitarians who swear that the Godhead is three gods in one and wonder why the pre-incarnate Christ and the Holy Spirit weren't giving the Father a hand here. But like I said, that's a digression. (laughs) An unfortunate one, but it helps to serve to prove that Trinitarians are playing with themselves like little children in the Bible. They don't understand the scripture. Again, later in the seventh Psalm, which is attributed to David, we read, God judges the righteous, and God is angry with the wicked every day. If he turns not, he will wet his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. He has also prepared for him the instruments of death. He ordains his arrows against the persecuted. And, of course, as Solomon also does here, this language is allegorical. Yahweh God is not a literal warrior who who is going to spring from heaven and fight a battle. Yahweh God is not a man, and he was never pre-incarnate as a man. In fact, the idea that anybody could be pre-incarnate, the idea that God could be pre-incarnate in the flesh actually conflicts with the very meaning of the word incarnate, which means to be in the flesh. And and that's a digression. It was unplanned. I'm just giving our friends who Debate this Trinity issue on a daily basis, some ammunition, I gather. Turning back to the response of the Egyptians, where Solomon had already explained that their own fears and their burdened consciences, I should say, their consciences, which were burdened with guilt, had killed them. Here he explains quite similarly. That then, in verse 17, then suddenly visions of horrible dreams troubled them sore, and terrors came upon them unlooked for. This word translated as unlooked for is adocatus, which is literally not supposed or not Imagined or unimagined. So that last clause may have been read, and unimagined terrors fell upon them. Solomon had described these same dreams in a somewhat different way in Wisdom, chapter 17. There, using another adjective to describe something unexpected, although apros- docedos, is formed from the same root word. We read in verse 15, as we translated the text, on one hand, they were persecuted with the wonders of apparitions, and on the other, they were weakened to the forsaking of their own lives, for a sudden and unexpected fear had poured over them. The point in making this note is that Solomon's descriptions, even though he describes the same thing, the same phenomenon, the same event in different ways from chapter to chapter, as he cycles through and repeats these descriptions in order to derive different lessons, the descriptions are nevertheless consistent with one another conveying similar ideas with different language. As we also saw in Wisdom chapter 17, where Solomon had described the dark of night, and as we would translate verse 3 of that chapter, for supposing for their hidden sins to be unnoticed, with a dim covering of oblivion, being terribly astonished, they were scattered and troubled by hallucinations. Only at this point is it evident that the Egyptians did abandon hope in their enchantments, as Solomon also described in that chapter. And as we would translate verse 7 in chapter 17 to read, But delusions of magic craft were neglected, and a contemptuous rebuke of the pretense for wisdom. So their having given up on their enchantments was itself a rebuke of their sorcery, as such things could never save them in the face of the vengeance of God. That too is a lesson which men may learn from today. Now he once again describes the aftermath of this final plague upon the Egyptians. And one thrown here and another there, half-dead, showed the cause of his death. As Liddell and Scott explained, while the phrase alos alanke, alos alake," I should say, simply means another there, it was used in that manner by the early 4th century soldier and historian, Xenophon, to mean one here, another there. Yet, for the sake of clarity, we would translate this entire verse to read, And one having been thrown here, and another there, half-dead, revealed for what cause they had died because the dead were strewn all over Egypt. And because they died for no other apparent reason, it should have been obvious that the cause of their deaths was as a punishment from God, something which the Egyptians themselves should not have been able to deny. Now Solomon attests that the dead themselves learned this before they died. Of course, they weren't around to tell their own brethren. In verse 19, For the dreams that troubled them did foreshow this, lest they should perish and not know why they were afflicted. And while the sense of the King James translation is acceptable, we will offer our own translation in order to clarify the rather archaic language. For the dreams which had been troubling them had indicated this beforehand in order that, not being ignorant of what reason they suffered terribly, would they die. Now, we have just cited Wisdom chapter 17, verse 3 above, while discussing verse 17 of this chapter. There Solomon said, Supposing for their hidden sins to be unnoticed, with a dim covering of oblivion, being terribly astonished, they were scattered, and troubled by hallucinations so now he asserts that the egyptians were forced to contemplate those sins which they had formerly supposed to be unnoticed as they were beset with the torments that quickly led to their deaths so in hindsight after encountering this verse here it is plausible that it certainly does seem to be what Solomon was suggesting by mentioning their supposedly hidden sins in that earlier passage. Solomon now makes what may seem at first to be a digression, but as he proceeds, it becomes evident that he is continuing a theme which he began much earlier in wisdom. Yeah, the tasting of death touched the righteous also the righteous being a remnant and a reference I'm sorry to the children of israel and there was a destruction of the multitude in the wilderness but the wrath endured not long And because at a glance, and because I went and undertook the effort, because at a glance this verse seemed to depart further from the sense of the original than it actually had, we also chose to offer our own translation. Then the trial of death had also touched the righteous, and destruction in the wilderness came upon a multitude, but not for long did the wrath abide. And here it becomes apparent that Solomon has not yet departed from his comparison of the punishment of Egypt for their destruction, in contrast to the punishment which the children of Israel had later suffered in the wilderness when they were beset with fiery serpents, but which was for their ultimate correction and preservation. When he began to theme in Wisdom chapter 16, we had described it as a tale of two torments, and the label is still appropriate. However, as we progress through the end of the chapter, it may also become apparent that similar torments are still being suffered to this very day by both the children of Israel and by those of their modern enemies. When the torments are completed, the emergent world shall finally become manifest, just as Solomon portrays here, of the changes which the plagues of Egypt had brought to the ancient world. But for now, here Solomon continues to speak of the account of the fiery serpents, where in reference to Moses we read, (coughs) For then the blameless man made haste, and stood forth to defend them. Bringing the shield of his proper ministry, even prayer, the prayer being the shield, and the propitiation of incense, set himself against the wrath and so brought the calamity to an end, declaring that he was thy servant. And of course, Solomon is still addressing Yahweh in the second person because this is a prayer which he began all the way back in Wisdom chapter 9. The word liturgia is ministry here, and while the word ministry today is usually only used in relation to particular religious functions, the Latin word minister was a common word which described a servant, attendant, or a helper. The word liturgy, which was derived from this word, liturgia, is also generally reserved for religious functions today. But among the ancient Greeks, a liturgia was simply a public service that was routinely performed by a common citizen who may build a theater for public entertainment or furnish a ship for the navy in order to fulfill his obligations to his people and the state. While in that same capacity, poorer citizens would complete less expensive tasks or endeavors. The word for servant at the end of the verse, theropon, is also a servant, but describes a voluntary servant, as opposed to a doulus, which was a slave, or a Mystheus, which was a hired or salaried servant. So the Greeks had specific words. It was also a liturgus, specific words to express different kinds of servants, and they shouldn't be confused. I guess I have a beef with these words because the Church has taken over these words which appear in the New Testament, Liturgia or Lytorgus. It's in there at least once or twice, and words that mean servant such as doulas, or diaconus, which is another sort of servant that's not a slave, and they have perverted them into their own meanings and their own uses. So that we imagine that the apostles were talking to us in church language, when they certainly were not. They were talking to us in normal, everyday language, using normal, everyday meanings of those terms. So, once again, as it was in his descriptions of the plagues upon Egypt, It is apparent that Solomon had access to a fuller account of at least some of the events of Scripture than what has been preserved to us today. Perhaps this he had also gotten from some now-lost books. While Solomon is being purposely poetic, as wisdom was indeed constructed as a poem, in Scripture there is no mention of incense in the account of the event to which he refers here which is found in Numbers chapter 21, where we read, And Yahweh sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. Solomon is actually describing piles of corpses here. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against Yahweh and against thee. Pray unto Yahweh that he take away the serpents from us, and Moses prayed to the people. No mention of incense. Now Solomon set forth Moses as an example of how men may withstand the wrath of God, because there is no other way. So he overcame the destroyer not with strength of body nor force of arms, but with a word, subdued him that punished, alleging the oaths and covenants made with the fathers. The destroyer here is being described in an anthropomorphism. The destroyer is not necessarily a person or individual It is being described as an anthropomorphism, as a poetic device, so we shouldn't run away with verses like that or with terms like that or descriptions of that manner and create doctrine out of them. Some centuries later, when Asa became king of Judah, we read, and Asa did, he was one of the very few which did this, and Asa did that which was good and right in the eyes of Yahweh his God. Nevertheless, in spite of removing much of the pagan idolatry from the land, Asa was not without challenges. So, further on in Second Chronicles chapter 14, we read, And there came out against them, Zerah the Ethiopian. Notice that Zerah the Ethiopian had a Hebrew name. And this isn't necessarily an Ethiopian from Ethiopia, because it should be Zerah the Cushite. And Zerah may very well have been from Mesopotamia. And there came out against them Zerah the Ethiopian, with a host of a thousand thousand, and three hundred chariots, and came to Marishah. Marishah was a town in Judah that was known as Marisa in the time of Josephus and fully inhabited with Edomites. Then Asa went out against him. At this time, it was inhabited by Judahites before the deportations, right? Then Asa went out against him, and they set the battle in array in the valley of Zephatha. At Marisha and Asa cried unto Yahweh his God and said, Yahweh, it is nothing with thee to help, or it is nothing for you to help, right? Whether with many or with them that had no power. In other words, Asa's making the expression that it didn't matter if he went out with a million men or with one, that with one, Yahweh God is the majority. So, help us, O Yahweh, our God, for we rest on thee, and in thy name we go against this multitude. O Yahweh, thou art our God. Let not man prevail against thee. So Yahweh smote the Ethiopians before Asa, and before Judah, and the Ethiopians, or Cushites, fled. So even Asa, who had strength of body and force of arms, did not rely on those things for victory and overcame his enemies with a prayer. His soldiers still had to fight, but it was Asa's humility and his having turned to God first, which had assured him the victory, whereby Yahweh God should be accredited with the victory. While Moses had been victorious over the fiery serpents in that same manner, it was not without cost, as Solomon continues. For when the dead were now fallen down by heaps one upon another, standing between, he stayed the wrath and parted the way to the living. In Numbers chapter 21, we are not told how many of the people had died from the bites of the serpents, but rather we read only that much people of Israel died in the opening verse of that chapter. So while Solomon is apparently not exaggerating, as we said before, he seems to have had a more complete account of the events which he describes. But notice in the prayer of Asa that he prayed to Yahweh for victory and said, And in thy name, we go against this multitude. O Yahweh, thou art our God, let no man prevail against thee. Not against us, against thee. So Asa did not necessarily pray on account of Israel, but rather he prayed that man did not prevail against the word of God, saying, let no man prevail against thee. There were other times when Moses was caught standing between God and the sinful children of Israel. For example, in the aftermath of the incident of the golden calf at Mount Sinai. So, as the wrath of God was set on punishing Israel for their idolatry, Yahweh had evidently tested Moses also, as we read in Exodus chapter 32. And Yahweh said unto Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may wax hot against them, and that I may consume them, and I will make of thee, speaking to Moses, I will make of thee a great nation. Here Moses had an opportunity that his own seed would inherit all the promises made to Abraham, but he would have none of it. And instead, he cared more for the word of God and his people. So once again, Moses pled on their behalf, where we continue with that chapter and we read, and Moses besought Yahweh his God and said, Yahweh, Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, thy servants, to whom thou swearest by thy own self, and said unto them, I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have spoken of, will I give unto your seed, and they shall inherit it forever. Excuse me. So with that, it is apparent that Moses begged Yahweh to spare the people, not for his own sake, as he was promised something much greater if they had been destroyed. It would have been really easy for most men to just go along and say, yeah, do that, then I could be the patriarch, right? And that would be a test that Moses would have failed. So, Moses begged Yahweh to spare the people, not for his own sake, and not merely for the sake of the people themselves, who were sinners worthy of being destroyed, as Solomon also expressed earlier here in Wisdom. But rather, Moses prayed that Yahweh would preserve them for God's own sake, that he would not break the promises which he made to the fathers, and that he had not delivered them from Egypt in vain. Not that Yahweh needed this advice from Moses, but it shows that Moses put his God first, his people second, and his own interests last in that manner, showing himself approved as Yahweh was testing him in that same manner. He's an example to us all until this very day. And he will stand as an example through, or throughout, I should say, and even beyond history. There is a beyond history. Now, for that same reason, that Yahweh God shall indeed keep the promises to the patriarchs as he had made them, Solomon now begins a conclusion of the matter. For in a long garment was the whole world, and in the four rows of the stones was the glory of the father's graven. And thy majesty upon the diadem of his head. That would be a headband in modern language. A fillet, F-I-L-L-E-T in medieval language. Or a turban. If Well, I'm not going to say it. I don't like that word turban. We don't need it. DM is fine. Here is the emergent world, the children of Israel who had inherited the promises to Abraham, which included the promises that his seed would be innumerable and inherit the earth. So we read in Isaiah chapter 27 He shall cause them that come of Jacob to take root, Israel shall blossom and bud. And filled the face of the world with fruit. But of course that had not happened so soon as the time of the fiery serpents. As the world, the children of Israel, had not even yet emerged from the wilderness after the exodus. Solomon is making the statement here that the children of Israel are the world. Some translations make innovations when rendering this verse, attempting to leave the impression that the garment of the high priest contained an illustration of the world, or, as they often also state, of the universe, and also the four rows of stones which represent the twelve tribes of Israel. But they all create a lie in doing that. So, for example, we read in the translation of this passage, in the New English Translation of the Septuagint, which in my opinion contains at least as many errors as the King James Version, For on his full-length robe the whole world was depicted, and the glories of the fathers were engraved on the four rows of stones. Then, in a note, it is admitted that there is no word for depicted, in the Greek text, but the damage is already done in the translation. Likewise, in the contemporary English version of the Bible, we read, and his long robe symbolized the entire universe, while the four rows of precious stones on his breastplate stood for our glorious ancestors. And of course, neither is there any word for symbolized in the Greek text. So that version also leaves the reader with the wrong impression of the meaning of the passage. So perhaps, in the face of these translations, it is fitting to see what the so-called long garment did contain, so that we can better understand Solomon's description here. From the instructions for the making of the priestly garments, In Exodus chapter 28, we read, And thou shalt make the breastplate of judgment with cunning work. After the work of the ephod thou shalt make it, of gold, of blue, and of purple, and of scarlet, and of fine twined linen shalt thou make it. Four square it shall be, being doubled. A span shall be the length thereof, and the span shall be the breadth thereof. And thou shalt set it, set in it settings of stones, even four rows of stones. The first row shall be a sardius, a topaz, and a carbuncle. This shall be the first row. And the second row shall be an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond. And the third row, a ligure, an agate, and an amethyst. And the fourth row shall be a beryl, and an onyx, and a jasper. They shall be set in gold in their enclosings. And the stone shall be with the names of the children of Israel, twelve according to their names, like the engravings of a signet. Every one with his name shall they be according to the twelve tribes. So Joseph would only get one stone, ostensibly. And thou shalt make upon the breastplate two rings of gold, and shalt put the two rings on the two ends of the breastplate. And thou shalt put the two wreathen chains of gold in the two rings, which are on the ends of the breastplate. And the other two ends of the two wreathen chains shalt thou fasten in the two alches. I'm not sure what all of these words mean. And then put them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod before it. And thou shalt make two rings of gold. And thou shalt put them on the two ends of the breastplate in the border thereof, which is in the side of the ephod inward. And the two other rings of gold shalt thou make, and put them on the two sides of the ephod underneath, toward the forepart thereof, over against the coupling thereof, above the curious girdle of the ephod, and they shall bind the breastplate by the rings thereof under the rings of the ephod with the lace of blue, that it may be above the curious girdle of the ephod, and that the breastplate be not loose from the ephod, and Aaron shall bear the names of the children of Israel in the breastplate of judgment upon his heart when he goes into the holy place for a memorial before Yahweh continually. And thou shalt put in the breastplate of judgment the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be upon Aaron's heart when he goes in before Yahweh. And Aaron shall bear the judgment of the children of Israel upon his heart before Yahweh continually. And thou shalt make the robe of the ephod all of blue, and there shall be a hole in the top of it, in the midst thereof. <coughs> it shall have a binding of woven work round about the whole of it. As it were, the whole of a herburgeon, whatever that is. Curious girdle, ouches, a herburgeon. I'm sorry I didn't take the time to look these things up. But it's absolutely obvious that all of these things are functional. And the only decorations on this ephod and on this breastplate are the four four rows of stones and the oram and the So, the robe (coughs) shall have a binding of woven work round about the whole of it, as it were the whole of a herbergen, that it be not rent, And beneath, upon the hem of it, thou shalt make pomegranates of blue and of purple and of scarlet round about the hem thereof, and bells of gold between them round about, a golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate upon the hem of the robe round about. And it shall be upon Aaron to minister, and his sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before Yahweh and when he comes out, that he die not, so the bells and the pomegranates are actual little pieces of metal shaped in those shapes so that they would cling together as he walked and everyone would know where he was. That is the full extent of the long robe. While its border was decorated with bells and pomegranates, The breastplate contained only the four rows of stones, with stones for each of the tribes of Israel, and the Urim and the Thumen, by which the answers from the inquiries which the priest had made to God were received. Everything else here is merely functional. There was no separate depiction or any illustration symbolizing the universe or the world. Rather. Here, in wisdom, Solomon is informing us that the four rows of stones themselves are the world. So we will translate the passage for ourselves, and for our purposes here, we will do so as literally as possible, even to the fault of, of English grammar, or, or to the harm, I should say, of English grammar, because many of my translations choose to be literally accurate rather than grammatically gratifying. Let me put it that way. For upon the garment reaching to the feet, the word poderous, reaching to the feet, that's what it means, the podes are your feet. For upon the garment reaching to the feet was the whole world, period, four words in English, four words in Greek, was the whole world. There's no other thing or or idea to add to that. For upon the garment reaching to the feet was the whole world and the glory of the fathers carved upon the four rows of stones and your majesty because Solomon is still praying to Yahweh and your majesty upon the DM of his head. Now, in the two verses which follow, in that same chapter which we cited from Exodus, we read, And I shall make a plate of pure gold, pure gold, and engrave upon it, like the engravings of a signet, holiness to Yahweh or in the King James English, holiness to the Lord. And thou shalt put it on a blue lace, that it may be upon the mitre, upon the forefront of the mitre it shall be. That was actually, that mitre, the way the King James Version translated it, it was actually a headband. So if Solomon says that the whole world was upon the long garment of the high priest, And in the description of the making of that garment, the only things which were placed upon it were the four rows of stones representing the twelve tribes of Israel, along with the Urim and Thummim representing the word of God, then the only valid conclusion is this. In the eyes of Solomon, the children of Israel under the word of God are the whole world and there is nothing else. But when the fiery serpents vexed the children of Israel in the desert, that world was only beginning to emerge from the captivity of Egypt, and it would still be some time before it was fully manifest. However, in like manner, Paul of Tarsus accounted the children of Israel themselves to be the families of the earth blessed in Abraham's seed. Which is how he interpreted Genesis chapter 18, verse 18, and Genesis chapter 2, or, I'm sorry, oh, Genesis chapter 22, verse 18. That's how he interpreted that promise, which is repeated in Genesis chapters 18 and 22, in chapter 3 of his epistles to the Galatians, where he said, and I'm going to cite this from the Christian New Testament, just as Abraham had trusted Yahweh, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, then you know that they, from faith, they are sons of Abraham. And the writing, having foreseen that from faith, Yahweh would deem the nations righteous, Announce to Abraham beforehand that in you shall all the nations be blessed. So those from faith are blessed along with the believing Abraham. Then in Romans chapter 4, Paul clarified what he referred to as the faith of Abraham by explaining that the faith of Abraham was what Abraham had believed and that Abraham had believed according to what Yahweh God had promised. While he also asserted that the children of Israel, whom he said were the seed or offspring of Abraham, had already become many nations and had already inherited the earth. So we shall read from that chapter, in part, and also from the Christiania New Testament, as it corrects several King James Version errors in this chapter. Now, what way from verse 1, because I'm going to skip around, I can't possibly read the whole chapter here, or I shouldn't. Now, what way, I'm sorry, I'm tripping over myself. Now, what may we say that our forefather Abraham, our forefather, has found concerning the flesh? Indeed, what did the writing say, skipping to verse 3, that Abraham trusted Yahweh. That's the faith of Abraham right there in a nutshell, that Abraham trusted Yahweh. He believed Yahweh, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And then skipping to verse 13, indeed, not through the law is the promise to Abraham or to his offspring. Because as Paul said back there in Galatians, the law came 450 years after that promise. Not through the law is the promise to Abraham or to his offspring that he is to be the heir of the society or the world. But through righteousness of faith. What faith? Paul's going to describe that here. Skipping to verse 16. Therefore, from of the faith, that in accordance with favor, then the promise is to be certain to all of the offspring, not to that of the law only, meaning that remnant, that small remnant of three tribes in Judea that kept the law, because all of the other tribes of Israel were taken into captivity. So it's not to that offspring of the law only, but also to that of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. And what's the faith of Abraham? That he believed God, that he believed what God had said. That's the faith of Abraham. The promise is certain to all of the offspring or seed of Abraham. Because that is what Abraham believed. For which Paul continues, and he makes another explicit declaration of that same thing. In verse 17, just as it is written, that a father of many nations, I have made you. It didn't say that many nations would become Abraham's seed. The promise says that Abraham's seed will become many nations before Yahweh whom he trusted who raises the dead to life and here's the most important part in relation to this because Abraham's seed were not many nations when the promise was made to him because the seed was going to become many nations before Yahweh whom he trusted who raises the dead to life and calls things not existing as existing all the other nations already existed they weren't going to be made abraham's seed because the seed that yahweh's talking about here did not yet exist but yahweh made the promise and that seed would come from his loins and it was so important that paul goes on to say who contrary to expectation In expectation believed, for which he would become a father of many nations according to the declaration, and this seals it, you cannot dispute this, according to the declaration, thus your offspring will be. And then, in spite of the fact that Abraham and Sarah were both quite old and beyond the expectation of having children, Paul said going on to verse 21, and having full satisfaction that what he has promised, he is also capable of doing. For that reason, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Therefore, the faith of Abraham being the belief in the promises of God, the faith of Abraham being what Abraham had believed nobody else may ever be concluded in the promises to abraham outside of his offspring his literal genetic descendants through jacob israel because that is precisely what god had promised and that is why abraham believed god so solomon justly described them as the world even before they emerge from the desert, because the promises concerning the world are ensured to them. As Paul had also said, because Yahweh God calls things not existing as existing, calls things which have not yet come to be as if they already are because he knows that they will come to exist in accordance with what he has promised. Furthermore, in keeping with Paul's words in Romans chapter 4, where he spoke of the faith of Abraham, he also must have had in mind what Abraham believed, where he said that on account of that, "...in you shall all the nations be blessed," referring to Abraham. So there, Yahweh must have also been calling things not existing as existing, and foreseeing that the seed of Abraham would inherit the earth. Therefore, those same nations are the nations that would be blessed." Now, because the children of Israel are the world, everywhere where the scriptures inform us that Christ had come to save the world, yet Christ himself proclaimed that he came only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, we can honestly reconcile those seemingly disparate statements, which are really not disparate at all, because the children of Israel are the world which Christ had come to save. Furthermore, because they are the world, we read in the next verse, the final verse of this chapter, Unto these the destroyer gave place, and was afraid of them, for it was enough that they only tasted of the wrath. And I would rather interpret the destroyer to have feared for the people, rather than to have been in fear of the people, as the phrase can evidently be translated either way. So, we would translate this verse to read. Unto these did the destroyer yield, since it had feared for them, For the trial of wrath alone was sufficient. In this case, the destroyer is found in the bites of the fiery serpents, from which the children of Israel were healed if indeed they had looked upon the serpent which Yahweh had instructed Moses to raise in the wilderness. It was enough for the children of Israel to have experienced wrath, ostensibly for the chastisement and correction of those who would survive the trial. But there are other lessons which may be learned from Solomon's analogies here in Wisdom. In the Old Testament, Yahweh's having delivered the children of Israel from Egypt was often described as an act of redemption. While there are several places where this is stated explicitly, here we shall read from Deuteronomy chapter 7, in verse 8. But because Yahweh loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, has Yahweh brought you out with a mighty hand, and redeemed you from the house of the bondmen, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Yet since the children of Israel went into captivity once again, although they became a great nation and a company of nations, in the process of their captivity from that early time and until the present day, they have also remained in various forms of captivity to world tyrants and rulers, to popes and kings and Jews. That's another story. In this regard, we read, in the Messianic prophecy found in Isaiah chapter 52, For thus saith Yahweh, You have sold yourselves for naught, they sold themselves into sin, and ye shall be redeemed without money. Throughout the last 26 chapters of Isaiah, the children of Israel are often referred to as the redeemed of Yahweh. Looking forward to the coming of their Redeemer, as Yahweh calls things not existing as existing. And therefore he said in Isaiah chapter 43, But thou thus saith Yahweh that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel. Fear not, for I have redeemed thee, I have called thee by thy name, thou art mine. Then again in Isaiah chapter 44, Remember these, O Jacob, and Israel, for thou art my servant. I have formed thee, thou art my servant. O Israel, thou shalt not be forgotten of me. I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions, and as a cloud thy sins. Return unto me, for I have redeemed thee. Sing ye, O heavens, for Yahweh has done it. Shout, ye lower parts of the earth, break forth into singing, ye mountains, O forest and every tree therein, for Yahweh has redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. Thus saith Yahweh, thy Redeemer, and he that formed thee from the womb, I am Yahweh that makes all things, that stretches forth the heavens alone, that spreads abroad the earth by myself. So for this, Christ had come, as Israel was and would be the emergent world. And in their emergence, he would reconcile them to himself. Yet that would be an ongoing process. So speaking about something which would occur. After the times of the Gentiles, would be fulfilled. As the passage reads in the King James Version of Luke chapter 21, verse 24, as Christ had further explained in verse 27, And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh or near. So the children of Israel await the completion of their redemption from captivity once again. And they await it until this very day. Even Paul of Tarsus recognized that while Christ was our that while Christ is our redeemer, the second act of redemption is not complete until his return. Thus he wrote in Ephesians chapter 4, telling his readers and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed under the day of redemption. The gifts of the Holy Spirit in the apostolic age were seen by Paul as an earnest or deposit assuring that coming redemption, which we read in Ephesians chapter 1 in verse 14, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, that word earnest means a deposit, until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. So while Christians are purchased by the blood of Christ, their redemption is not quite complete. Therefore, while true Christians, those who are of the ancient children of Israel, are already purchased, they are already redeemed. But once again, because Yahweh calls things not existing as existing, that final act of redemption from captivity remains to be anticipated. We still await that act. So we would assert that the first redemption of Israel is a type, a model, for the final redemption. And the delivering of Israel from Egypt is a type for the coming salvation of Israel. So just as that redemption from Egypt was culminated in the death of the firstborn, and then in the destruction of Pharaoh's army in the flood, in the reconvergence of the parted halves, of the Red Sea. It seems that similar events will occur once again as Israel is delivered from her current captivity, which is evident in prophecy in places such as Isaiah chapter 28 and Revelation chapter 12. So in Isaiah chapter 28, where it it addressed the rulers of Judah, we read, Because you have said, We have made a covenant with death, and with hell are we at agreement. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, it shall not come unto us, for we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood have we hid ourselves. Therefore thus saith Yahweh God, Behold, I lay in Zion, this is an absolute reference to Christ. I lay in Zion for a foundation stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, (coughs) a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believes shall not make haste. Judgment also will I lay to the line, and righteousness to the plummet. And the hail shall sweep away the refuge of lies, and the water shall overflow the hiding place. And your covenant with death shall be disannulled, and your agreement with hell shall not stand. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, then ye shall be trodden down by it. Then, as the earth certainly helped the woman escape from Egypt, the woman being an allegory for Israel as the bride of Yahweh, we read again in Revelation chapter 12, and the serpent cast out his mouth, water, as a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away in the flood. And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon cast out of his mouth. We do not know how precisely, we do not know precisely how all these things shall unfold. But we should know that they will unfold and Israel will once again be delivered from captivity in like manner as she was delivered from Egypt. Notice also that Israel was delivered from Egypt once they were enslaved, and their masters sought to destroy their children. The parallels with this modern world are striking, so that we should also know that our redemption is near. Just as the four rows of stones, one for each of the twelve tribes of Israel, had represented the emergent world in the death of Egypt, now this is the emergent world that we that we anticipate. The city of God, or that we should anticipate, the city of God and the tree of life, which consists only of the twelve tribes of Israel, as they are described in the closing chapters of the Revelation. The same twelve stones are found once again as the foundation stones of that city, although the interpretations of some of the names may vary, because their original meanings are not all properly understood. But as the fire, which represented the presence of God, had protected the children of Israel in Egypt, Before this new world emerges, as we read in Second Peter chapter 3, the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Those who have the Spirit of God, the children of Israel, shall withstand that fire as it had protected the children of Israel in Egypt. But as the Egyptians were destroyed in the dark of night, in the conflagration which is to come, all of the goat nations, the devil, and his messengers, all of what we know as world Jewry, which is Satan, shall meet their end in the lake of fire. However, this time, there shall be no one left to sing dirges for their children, or to invent tales about a holocaust. On the other hand, the children of Israel will rejoice on account of their fathers, who clung to the tree of life and didn't produce bastards, as Solomon had warned against in the earlier chapters of Wisdom. This concludes our commentary on Wisdom chapter 18. When we return, we hope to conclude our commentary on the wisdom of Solomon itself, as there is one last chapter. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and the enemy of all bastards, and good night.